Quick disclaimer this week. There are some adult themes, talk of mutilation and other weirdness. Basically, it's your everyday fairy tale. But if any of those are of concern to you, please check out the post on mythpodcast.com or follow the link in the show notes. This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the stories of 1001 Nights. And you'll see how yelling improvised poetry at strangers might just save your skin or help you meet the love of your life. Also, definitely follow those sketchy guys sneaking off into the graveyard to bury something, because you might get some rat kebabs with your story time. The creature this week is a bird that finds you at your happiest and makes your heart explode. This is Myths and Legends, episode 295, What's in the Box? This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes to us from 1001 Nights, a collection of tales that includes Aladdin, Sinbad, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, and so many more, like hundreds more. One of those hundreds is today's story. And one of the things I like about it is that it looks at everyday people. People like Ghanem, a merchant who has just been guilted into going to a funeral. Ghanem had a pretty nice house in Baghdad. If he could get to it. He had been in the city for almost a year. He was a merchant from Damascus. He had a nice house with cushions and curtains, the story takes an effort to point out, and he kept all of his goods there, his silks and spices and trinkets and whatnot, and he was good. He could buy things for one dinar and sell them for two, which margin-wise, a 100% markup is good. Except today, it had been closed. The market, that is. Over the year, he made friends with the other merchants, and sadly, one of them had died. Since they all worked constantly, all of his friends were merchants, so the market was closed that day. The other merchants said Ghanem could take the day off, or, you know, if he wasn't completely terrible and horrible, could join them at the funeral. What Ghanem didn't know, upon washing himself and making his way out of the city gates, was that the funeral was also kind of a sleepover. You see, the merchant's friends and family went all out tent over the grave in a full buffet so they could be comfortable while they read the Quranic verses and celebrated the merchant's life. It was nice, as, you know, funerals go. But come nightfall, Ghanem started getting antsy. He hadn't been showy with his money in town, but he hadn't been hiding it either. Everyone knew Ghanem was doing pretty well. And right now, his house was sitting locked, but unguarded. He never really thought about it, but as I've learned over the last seven years, when you're self-employed, it is really hard to take a vacation. He never considered what he would do if he had to be away for the night, or even out of the city for any length of time. Still, you can't be the first one to leave. So he would just wait. Surely someone would leave early and he could pop up right after. But they love this guy, the dead guy that is. Kept talking about how great he was, crying, oh, he'll be missed, blah, blah, blah. Yes, Ghanem knew that that was the point of funerals, but come on, 
Ganon couldn't have been the only acquaintance who had been peer pressured into coming to this thing. But he was. Around midnight, he felt like he could hear his door getting kicked in and the thieves carrying off a year's worth of work. He had everything back in the house. He had to go. He couldn't just stay here all night. Oh, just remembered. I have business I have to do. Serious business, Ganem said. The other merchants said it was the middle of the night. Ganem smirked. Well, that was why they would always be number two. If you don't sacrifice everything at the altar of money, can you even call yourselves merchants? Yes, the merchants replied. Not from where I'm standing, which is at the top. Ganem winked and finger gunned. He walked away with swagger. Nailed it. The swagger quickly transformed into a panicked speedwalk, which, I don't know if you've seen a speedwalk, that's the objective opposite of swagger. The lanterns lit his path. The chatter of the city rose in the night. The city gates were closed. Who closed the gates? Oh, we do it every night, he heard from above. A guard patrolled the wall. Are we at war or something? Ganem asked. Every night. Really? The guard said, well, what was the point of having gates if you never close them, right? Ganem said, oh, well, could the guard just open them up and let him in? Ooh, that's a no can do, my dude. No can do? That sounds weird. Uh, the answer is no. There's a contraption and a big wheel and chains. It is this whole thing. Just like find a place to sleep, they open at dawn. But my house, it is full of riches and no one is guarding it. All my neighbors are out of the city too, Ganem yelled. The guard said, well, if the merchant wanted to give him his address, he would be happy to check up on the house. Full of riches, the merchant said. Ganem stopped himself. You know what? He would be fine. He would just sleep in the graveyard. The guard yelled after him, okay, just, you know, if he decided to tell the man where his unguarded house full of riches was, the guard would be happy to check on them or something. For some reason, Ganem couldn't sleep. Maybe it was because he couldn't even find his way back to the funeral with the buffet. Maybe it was because all he heard were the wolves snarling and hounds baying off in the distance while he tried to sleep in a stranger's tomb. It was a nice tomb. This family knew how to die in style. The tomb, containing four graves, was surrounded by a wall and it had a nice little tree growing next to it. But either from reclining on a stone slab or literally being surrounded by corpses, sleep eluded Ghanim. He sat up and went to the door of the tomb and saw the light. Not like in a religious sense. There was an actual light coming from the city, directly for the gate surrounding the tomb. He closed the door that opened up the outer wall and scrambled into the tree over the tomb. There were three men, two hefting a chest and one with tools. He didn't know what they were up to, but people slinking through a graveyard at two in the morning are rarely doing fun and good things. I thought you said you opened up the tomb earlier. Kaffer, one of the men said to the other two. Yeah, Bukate said. People come through the graveyard at night shutting things down. They probably just closed it up. I opened it earlier. I'll open it again. I'll just climb over the wall. No big deal. 
Do you think we should throw the chest over first? I mean, like, graveyards can be dangerous places, and what if we're caught with it? Don't you think we should keep it safe? One of the men asked. And chucking it over the wall is your version of keeping it safe. Ganem heard, too. Silence. Yeah, I'll be right back. Seeing clearly in the moonlight, Ganem could see that the man was an enslaved man. A eunuch. The man climbed over the wall, picked his way down the other side, and opened up the door from within. See? No muss, no fuss. Get inside. The other two men, both enslaved as well, dragged the chest inside and, with the door clicking shut behind them, breathed. Whew. All right. Safe. Anyone want a rat? I'll build a fire. Nice juicy rat while we all catch our breath, Bukate said, entering the tomb and... Hmm. What? The other two men asked. The enslaved man said it was nothing. Probably it was just cleaner. When he scouted out the place last week, it was full of leaves and dust and junk. It looked like someone had swept off one of the graves in here. They said it was probably the same people that closed the door. You getting that rat or... Bukate did go over to a corner, I guess, where a big old rat lived. And one well-placed rock smash later he came back with a dead rat. He said he needed breast. How about the others? The two men nodded. Absolutely. They should take a minute. Then, from the tree, Ganem saw one of their faces light up. <gasps> oh my gosh. Did they want to tell castration stories? They should tell castration stories. Ganem said, What? So, sucking the fat from that juicy rat... The three men started in on, yes, their castration stories. And yes, that is horrifying. But it was a memorable event that the trio sadly had in common. Bukates was fairly straightforward. He was captured by enslavers when he was five years old and sold to a family who wanted a playmate for their daughter. They did not think that through. Years passed, both kids grew into adolescence, and yeah, one day they were play wrestling and discovered some things about themselves. The mother discovered it and went to great lengths to hide it from the father, marrying the daughter off the next week to her dad's barber. It was actually completely unrelated to the incident of the two teens together, but the father found Bukit, and wanting him to stay on as the now-married teen girl's companion, gelded him. So she and I remained very good friends, wink, until her husband died. She died, and I was sold as part of the estate to our current enslaver, Bukate said. The two men clapped. Beautiful, beautiful story. Ganem sat stunned at these sheer layers of trauma. How did... what? Oh, me next, me next, Kaffer clapped. Kaffer was taken by slavers when he was eight. He discovered something early on, though. The people who are willing to violently capture other humans and sell them? Not nice or trusting. You can easily sow discord among them and get them to fight and even kill each other. One lie a year, that's all it took. Just throw some stuff in the river and insinuate that it was one of the other slavers? Death brawl. Ask why so-and-so's girlfriend was by while the slaver was out, you know, enslaving? Duel to the death. Wow, nice, Bukate said. Kaffir said, yeah, really thinned out their ranks. That is, 
until they put aside their differences and started talking it out. A few years later, he was discovered as the source of the lies. He was sold to a rich merchant's family, but also didn't see why anything should change. One morning, the merchant's wife and daughters came in to find Kefir crying? He said he had seen it. He had warned the master, but no, he wouldn't listen. Now, now, the wife grew serious. What happened? Kefir said he warned his master, don't have your weekly merchant meeting underneath that old wall. It was too unstable. It could crumble in an instant and kill him. And it did. The merchant and so many others were dead. He tried to get the authorities, but no one would believe him, and Kuffer could only barely hide his smile when she believed him. The merchant's wife, that is. Racked by anguish, she started sobbing, then tearing at her cloak, then punching herself in the face. Kuffer said that that, he, he didn't think that was a healthy way to deal with grief, but the girls started doing the same thing. Then, things really kicked off. The wife started by flipping the couch. A daughter grabbed an axe and started chopping it to pieces, while the wife sobbed and started throwing vases and other valuables right through the windows, eyes clouded by tears as she did. The daughters climbed and tore down shelves. Cuffer, Cuffer heard from the kitchen, come tear down these cupboards and break the china inside. Cuffer's face lit up, yes, wow, this was unexpectedly awesome. By the time he made it to the kitchen, he was crying again, wailing that his master was gone. Nothing could solve this pain, but maybe breaking more stuff would help. They told the governor that the merchant was dead, and Kaffer led the funeral parade back to the house. He made it back before everyone else, and... Kaffer? What happened here? The merchant asked. He was standing, stunned, back home after his merchant brunch, and why was everything everywhere? Why were Kaffir's clothes ripped and his head covered in dust like he had been mourning? Kaffir broke down. The master said no. Oh no. A wall fell on them, Kaffir said, and even he was surprised by how much mileage he was getting out of this wall-falling story. Kaffir hugged the distraught merchant. Then the procession came down the road. The wife and daughters, mourning the husband, met the husband, mourning the wife and daughters. Wow, it is a miracle! Kaffir clapped his hands. The husband had never been happier to see his family. The family never happier to see the father. You know, it's like, you need to be grateful for what and who you have in your life. That is the gift I've given you today. You'll always be content if you only want what you have. Then, Kaffir looked at the family closing in on him. Right, guys? So I felt a bonk on the head and I woke up and, yeah, nothing. Honestly, if I had known castration was on the table, I probably would have just escaped. They did not take that well. Anyway, in the time since he had been drifting from noble house to noble house, he doesn't lie as much anymore, turned out the people who are willing to subjugate and enslave others, they have a terrible sense of humor. They ended up not having time for the third guy's story. 
what started as a quick break from hefting a chest turned into an hours-long story time. The sun was about to come up, and if they were discovered here, they would be in so much trouble. All right, they should go clear out a spot. Ghanem could see through the opening in the wall of the tomb as the three men pried up a stone and dug out underneath, placing the chest inside. They patted the dirt down on the base of the tree, came back, and replaced the stone. When it was all done, as the sun was beginning to rise, Ghanem couldn't tell the stone had ever been moved. The three enslaved men made their way out of the courtyard and locked the gate behind them. Now, when people are burying a chest in the graveyard, there's obviously a reason they wanted to keep things secret, but I don't know. You have to wonder what's in there. There wasn't even a question in Ghanem's mind. Of course he was going to look. And if he didn't cover it with the same amount of perfection that the others did, who cares? That was their problem, not his. He, too, pried up the stone and followed the allure of the mystery box. It wasn't even locked. He flipped it open, excited for the gold or jewels or whatever inside, and saw her? A woman. A woman had been stuffed into the chest. Ghanem reeled. Okay, yeah, this was suddenly his problem. If he was caught here with a body and a chest, things would not end well for him. No one would believe that he had been chilling in a tree all night listening to castration stories. Was that even a thing? He had to do what the other guys had done and make this disappear, and then he saw her chest rise ever so slightly. He gasped. She was alive. She was alive and drugged. He pulled her from the chest and laid her out in the tomb. And it wasn't an hour until she gasped awake. She looked around in a panic, spouting off a half a dozen names Ghanem didn't know. Even if he did know them, though, he wouldn't have heard them. He was too entranced. She was beautiful. She sat up. She, the, the last thing she remembered, she was surrounded by the screens and the curtains of the palace harem. What was she doing in this tomb? Not really caring about the concept of too soon, Ghanem grinned. She was stunning. He had never seen anyone like her before. Sure, she had just woken up drugged in a chest after likely an attempted murder, but also, he was going to shoot his shot here. Uh, real quickly, I shouldn't have to say this, but the internet has shown me otherwise. Don't do this. Don't hit on people who are in vulnerable situations. It's a story. We just watched three family members turn their home into a grief mosh pit. It's not real. Anyway, he yelled what every woman once screamed at them the moment they regained consciousness. Terrible, improvised poetry. Oh, my lady, there are neither screens nor curtains nor harems or whatever else you said. Only a slave henceforth devoted to your love. Ganem bin Ayub, sent to thee by the omniscient one above, that all thy troubles he may remove and win for thee every wish that cloth behove. And I've read that last part three times and I still don't know what it means. But apparently, it worked. It worked to reassure her that he probably wasn't the one who had tried to murder her. Lobar. She turned to Ganem. Who brought her here? He ran through the previous night about the three enslaved eunuchs, and that seemed to clarify some things, and she nodded. All right. She rose and pulled the empty chest from the ground. Ganem followed along as they replaced the stone 
and the woman climbed back into the chest. Why? Why was she climbing back into the chest? You need to take me to your house, drag the chest to the road, hail a camel driver or muleteer. You're a merchant, right? Just You're just transporting some goods. Should be easy enough, she said, and told him that when they were safe, she would tell him why she was out there in the first place. And who was trying to kill her? Ghanem did some quick mental calculations. On one hand, he should really know what this person was involved in and who was trying to kill her before he took this beautiful woman into his home. On the other hand, there was the latter half of that sentence. He told her that he would be happy to help. We'll hear the stranger's half of the story eventually, but that will be right after this. Wow, that's a heavy one, the muleteer said, as he was hefting the chest up into his cart. (laughs) Definitely not a body, Ghanem, the merchant, smiled. Uh, okay. It's a treasure. A treasure worth 10,000 gold pieces, Ghanem cried aloud, so that the woman in the chest heard him. Because nothing says I love you intrinsically like quantifying someone's worth in monetary value. Okay, the driver said. Again, all this was just great. Did the merchant want to climb aboard, though? The merchant leapt up. Oh, yeah. He was just thinking about someone. Someone who definitely wasn't in a chest. All right, let's go. As desperate as Ghanem seemed, he actually was a good guy. He went out and got some roasted lamb, some sweetmeats, dried fruit, candles, the works. He made dinner for her after she cleaned up after, you know, almost being murdered. And the two sat and talked. Not about who was trying to murder her, but just getting to know one another. It was actually really nice. Days passed like this. Almost a month, with them sitting and talking all night. Then he felt like, you know, he could kind of read the situation. He was into her. He thought she was into him. He would take things slow. He looked her in the eyes and slowly moved toward her. And she put a hand on his chest. He stopped. He, sorry, He must have misread that situation because she said, no, absolutely not. She felt it too. They were in love. Then she leaned back, grabbed a wineskin and started just guzzling it. Gunnam said, uh, what's happening right now? She swallowed the wine. Oh yeah, uh, long story. She would love to kiss him and other stuff. Notice the eyebrow waggle. But, uh, small catch she can't know. So here's what they're going to do. She was going to drink so much that she passes out. Then he can kiss her. Gotham said that that sounded really bad. She said that she wanted him to kiss her so badly, but this was the only way. He said he really was not cool with that. She kept drinking. It'll be fine. Just pretend like she's conscious. Gunnam said, okay, he definitely was not okay with this. 
He held back the wine. She needed to tell him why she couldn't have any memory of that. The woman said, okay. She shook her head. This was going to change everything. She showed, apparently on the drawstring of her pants, that it apparently read, in all caps, I am yours and thou art mine, O cousin of the apostle. Ghanem said, cousin of the apostle. He gasped. Wait, the caliph? The woman grimaced and inhaled sharply through her teeth. Yeah. So she, apparently, belonged to the harem of the caliph. She was brought up in the palace, and when she reached, the story says, womanhood, he looked on her and fell in love with her instantly, or something. She was named one of his concubines, had ten enslaved girls to wait on her and her own apartment. The only problem with being the favored concubine was that the caliph was also married. His wife, Zubiata, according to this story, was cool with the situation to his face, but secretly trying to low-key murder the concubines when the caliph went on his work trips. So that's what she did. Zubiata hired one of the woman's enslaved workers to jam some sleepy drugs up her nose, and then she woke up in a tomb, with Ghanem ogling her. Ghanem cried. He wept and beat his chest. Why? Why? Kut, the woman, stroked his back. It's okay. She was safe now. He helped her to feel safe again. Why? Why can't they be together? Like, physically, Ghanem said, still weeping and beating his chest. What is love's taste? Ghanem asked, composing some on-the-spot poetry that is apparently his thing. What is love's taste? They asked and answered I. Sweet is the taste, but ah, tis bittersweet. Could grimaced. Oh, so he wasn't torn up by her harrowing story, but the fact that they couldn't have a... Ugh. Still, she was distraught as well. She loved him and wanted to be together. The next day, when he returned home from doing merchant stuff, they confronted the temptation head-on by sitting across the room and staring at each other for hours, telling themselves that no, they couldn't. Which, you know, definitely didn't make things more difficult. Four months had now passed, and Zubiata was anxious. At first, murder seemed like such a solid solution. Now, she wasn't sure. There were a lot of loose ends, like all the ends. What if any of the enslaved people talked? What if the caliph asked, hey, where's my favorite concubine? Oh, she's dead? Where did we bury her? Calm down the crone said to Zubiata. All these problems were solvable. Zubiata breathed. Thank you, heretofore unmentioned character in which I can confide. What should she do? Two words, the crone said. Wood corpse. The girl was dead, right? Zubiata said that she only had her poisoned and buried, but so she hadn't seen the corpse? Okay, well, this isn't like a TV drama CW rules. The slave trio buried her, drugged under a stone. She's dead. So it's not even lying. So we bury a wood corpse here in the palace, make it a really nice little grave, 
it'll be great. Done and done, the crone said. Zubiata gave her the go-ahead, and a wooden corpse was carved. Now, you think, isn't that a bad idea? A wooden corpse, like, why have any corpse? Well, for whatever reason, it worked. The caliph bought it when he came home and found everyone dressed in black. He heard that Kut was dead and that the queen had her buried right there in the castle so she could conveniently wail over the grave. The caliph followed her in that and, quote, wept until he fainted. My issue with the wooden corpse plan was that it didn't solve the real problem of the attempted murder. I mean, other than attempted murder. It just added to the number of all the people that knew. There were already at least five people, including the crone, who knew in addition to Zubiata. And there's a saying that goes, three people can keep a secret if two are dead. In the month the caliph spent weeping over the grave, the five people that knew the secret turned into, well, basically everyone. After a month of weeping at the grave, the caliph decided to take a break for a massage and a foot shampoo. While he was laying there, relaxed, the servants started gossiping. They knew everything, even more than Zubiata, because in the five months since she had taken up residence with Ghanim, Kut had been able to leave the house here and there, to reconnect with people from her old life, to see if Zubiata really thought her dead. And it totally backfired when they gossiped and accidentally revealed to the caliph that, no, she wasn't dead. She was at the house of Ghanim bin Ayub. Oh, who's that? Ah, some merchant from Damascus. The caliph laid there, seething, dismissing the woman as soon as he could. And he called in his vizier, named Ja'afar, who rushed in with a team of his own servants. They were to go to the house of this Ghanim, when they found it, and bring his slave girl back to him. <laughs> Sorry, slip of the tongue. Concubine. Whoops. The caliph said the quiet part out loud. Oof. He didn't notice one of the servants slip from the room as he gave the order. We'll see how the couple stays one step ahead of the law, but that will, once again, be right after this. Okay, uh, you have to leave, Kut said, as Ghanim sat down to begin another one of their intense, staring, will they, won't they, no, actually they won't because Ghanim was scared of being executed sessions. Ghanim said, what? Could explained, yeah, she had heard from one of her old friends, one of them in the employ of the caliph's vizier. The vizier, Ja'afar, was coming for them. Right now. Ghanim said, wait, seriously? She said, yeah. He would likely be arrested and killed, so seriously, he should go. Now. He said he was really glad he didn't live here. They should both go to Damascus. Could winced yeah it was really well known that he was from damascus so he probably shouldn't go home either she said she was so sorry she had gotten him into this situation he said she shouldn't be he loved her and he would die for that love if he needed to could said yeah but maybe not today she replaced his cloak with a worn one and pushed him out the back door while jafar was kicking down the front door with his guys they swarmed in and searched the place, taking Kut captive. They demanded to know where Ghanim was, but Kut said she would only talk to the caliph. 
Ja'afar sneered. He told his guys to just, like, smash this place up, really go nuts. He would escort Kut back to the palace. Kut explained to the caliph that she loved Ghanim, and she begged for his safety and release. She would take his punishment, whatever it was. The caliph wouldn't even speak to her. He threw her into a dark room in the dungeon. He would learn the truth of what had happened. And while that was happening, Ghanim walked. He left Baghdad. He didn't even know where he was going. He could only guess, but the caliph had already sent word to the governor that Ghanim was to be arrested on sight. All of his possessions in Damascus would be seized, and everything in Baghdad was destroyed. He had nothing. So he wandered, begged, moved from city to city, worried that someone would discover who he was. But in time, there was no fear of even that. He became so weathered and gaunt, his mother and sister, traveling in the opposite direction, going to Baghdad to see how they could help him, passed him on the street without recognizing him. Ghanim was not doing well. He lost the love of his life. He had nothing. He couldn't even return to his family, or else he would risk putting them in danger. He was starved and haggard. He fell asleep one evening against the back wall of a mosque and did not wake up. Well, he didn't expect to wake up. Most of all, he didn't expect to wake up back in Baghdad. He positively freaked out when he recognized the mosque and the healer. Okay, how did he get here? Well, it turned out that the people in the village were super nice. When he collapsed, they took him to the doctor. But when his condition didn't improve, they gathered money to send him to a healer in Baghdad. They strapped him unconscious to a camel, the story says, and took him all the way back. And the healer had returned him to health so that he could be executed by the caliph. Which, as soon as the healer discovered his identity, the caliph learned. Ghanim was dragged from his sickbed, barely healed, by the guards that were waiting for him to wake up. He was taken to the palace. He passed his mother and sister, crying, and a door swung open, and he saw Kut in tears. But he was glad for this. He was glad that he could see her one last time before he was killed. Then she kissed him. He, wait, what was going on? Over the past 80 days in the palace, Kut was in solitary. She didn't know it, but she had an audience. Every day while she wept and prayed, the caliph listened outside the door. It took 80 days, 80 days for him to believe her wailing, that nothing had happened between her and Ghanim. He opened the door, and she bowed low. He said he was sorry he did that, but he had to know. He told her that she was free, but he didn't want her back. Kut said that he didn't want her back, but she said nothing happened. The caliph sighed. He knew nothing happened. It wasn't that. It was... She was in love. He could tell. She spent two and a half months weeping and praying for Ghanim. She loved him, and he loved her. He wouldn't stand in the way of that love. 
she could ask anything of him, and he would do it. The ask was, of course, for Ghanem to be forgiven of crimes he didn't actually commit, and for the caliph to put the full effort of the government into finding the man. I can picture the caliph laughing that they were already doing that to execute, you know what, never mind, yes, of course, consider it done. That's how, when Ghanem came back to Baghdad, he was immediately picked up. He had given up his mind so fully to being summarily executed that he didn't notice he had been dressed in fancy clothes and prepared to be brought before the caliph. It was, after all, his wedding day. As you can probably guess, Ghanem has a bad habit of breaking out into verse every time he feels a big feeling, and this was no exception. Luckily, it was a poem about every medieval ruler's favorite subject, themselves. After he wrapped up the improvised verse about how great the caliph was, the ruler looked on this man. This Ghanem. He was all right. He was so all right that the caliph gave him all of his gold back and more and put him and Kutup in a wing of the palace. And since he was down a concubine, he heard that Ghanem had a good-looking sister. Now, maybe Ghanem had some strongly held and experienced beliefs about the destructive nature of slavery and forcing people to be your spouse. Maybe he really only cared about that stuff when it directly affected him negatively. Who's to say it's the latter? He cried out, I am your slave and she is thy handmaid. He called his sister into the throne room, told her that she was marrying this guy, and definitely probably didn't start the whole story all over again. That's it for the story this week. It was a fun, low-key, brutal one, especially in the beginning. I do like how it followed everyday people, though. Like, people who are not in positions of power, like the eunuchs, the concubine, and to some extent, Ghanem. Though, Ghanem was super ready to join the system that persecuted him almost to death the moment an opportunity presented itself, so maybe he's not the best role model. Next week, we have some light Greek myth mixed in with an amazing story of a guy who wants to become a sorcerer and how that very much does not go well. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site and really soon to be on Apple Podcasts too for everybody wanting a different way to subscribe. So keep an eye out for that. For less than the price of LED flashlight gloves, gloves with LED bulbs built into the index finger and thumb, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that are not like having the worst, though maybe actually the most low-key useful X-Men power ever. Check out mythpodcast.com slash membership for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the siren from Slavic folklore. Now, the Slavic siren, spelled with an I-N instead of an E-N, is similar to but different from the Greek siren. They're both women with human heads and bird bodies. In this case, they have owl bodies. They both like to sing, but only one type likes to hang around a big pile of corpses they've collected. And thankfully, it is not the Slavic siren. As we know, the Greek sirens like to lure sailors to their deaths, just for, like, fun. The Slavic sirens symbolize happiness and harmony. They aren't monsters who live in the sea, but something closer to angels that live in a paradise. They're the embodiment of harmony and human happiness. And as such, they're extremely rare and hard to see or capture for more than a moment at a time. 
kind of a pessimistic view of the human condition. But it also means that only those who are happy or harmonious or close to God can hear or catch a glimpse of the siren. She apparently sang songs to the saints, telling them of future blisses. But even though the Slavic siren can be good, it still pretty much ends the same way. In this one, you hear the song, you don't just want to sit there and starve to death, but you're so happy and bliss-filled that you're dead, which also has to be kind of a pessimistic metaphor for life, because apparently human life and happiness and harmony cannot exist at the same time, because if they ever do, well, that means, like, your heart will explode and you'll die immediately. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>